the MCAT Podcast, session number 197. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Blueprint MCAT, the MCAT Podcast is free MCAT prep to help you understand the MCAT, teach you how to break down questions, and give you the skills and confidence to get the score you want on your MCAT test day. Learn more about Blueprint MCAT at blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. A collaboration between the medical school headquarters and Next Step Test Prep, the MCAT podcast is here to make sure you have the information you need to succeed on your MCAT test day. We all know that the MCAT is one of the biggest hurdles you'll face as a pre-med, and we're here to give you the motivation and information that you need to know to help get you the score you deserve so you can one day call yourself a physician. Now, welcome to the MCAT Podcast. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray. I'm excited that you are here. I don't know if you're going to be excited, though, because this week we are continuing our breakdown of Blueprint MCAT Full Length 1, diving into the cars section. Hopefully, this will help you as you go through your MCAT journey. But I know that cars for me is a huge pain, but I hope you enjoy our episode today. Don't forget to check out Blueprint prep.com slash MCAT for great deals all the time on their MCAT materials, whether you're looking for third-party full-length exams, which Blueprint has the best, or you're looking for an MCAT course, which again, Blueprint is right up there with all of the other courses and has the best value. You get office hours every day, five days a week with Phil, four of those days here on the podcast. Phil, my obviously my co-host, he is the host of the office hours, four out of the five days a week if you sign up for the Blueprint course. Blueprint has a ton of things for you. Go check them out, blueprintprep.com slash MCAT. Phil, back for some more MCAT podcast, Blueprint, full length one. Oh, Full length one just Mouthful. gives me sh- shivers. <laughs> um, we finished last week, we finished chem fizz. And for those of you listening and don't know, next up in the gauntlet is cars. That's the normal order of life in the MCAT world. So we're going to jump into our cars passage. What What is the biggest difference as, as a student is transitioning from chem fizz to cars? What kind of big mind shift should they make in terms of how they're approaching these? Yeah, first off, there should be a big mind shift and just sort of like understanding. So in the sciences, they're trying to figure out what you know and how well you can apply that. In cars, they don't care about that. They don't care what you know. The entire point of the cars section is trying to see how well you understand somebody else's perspective. It's not about what you know. So if there's a passage about like the Russian oligarchy and you don't know anything about it, that's fine. That might even be better. Because if you know something about it, you can start to bring in that outside information, which is the bane of every student. So as you walk into cars, I always encourage students to just, you know, like metaphorically take all the information they know, cram it up into a ball and chuck it out the window. Um, (laughs) Because none of that's going to help you. Lovely. On the other hand, on the other hand, that sounds really bad, but like everything is in the passage. And so you come in. Um, you know, without, without a lot of tools, but you don't need a lot of tools because it's just reading the passage. Everything's in there. You just need to figure out what's important and just as key, what stuff isn't important. So you can get through those passages quickly and get to the questions, which is where all the points actually lie. 
So this passage doesn't start with, uh, you know, the, the exam doesn't start off on an easy foot here. So we can get this first sentence. This course will deal with linguistics proper, not with languages and language. So I can already tell this is going to be a pretty abstract topic because we're talking about linguistics and the nature of linguistics. So it's just something to be a little bit wary of. Uh, a lot of students tend to struggle with those more complex uh, philosophical passages, the things that are more abstract. And so if that's the case for you, you might consider skipping this right at the beginning on test day. I know at least for me personally, it takes a little bit to kind of get warmed up and, and, and in the zone. So I like to start on an easier one, if at all possible. <laughs> if but, at all possible being yeah. the key statement. Yeah. Yeah. If at all possible. <laughs> um, but with this, we're going to go through it just in the order that they come up. And so we'll go ahead and start with this one. So the course will deal with linguistics proper, not with languages and language. The science has gone through phases with shortcomings. Three phases may be distinguished, or three successive approaches adopted by those who took a language as an object of study. Later on came a linguistics proper aware of its object. And so super abstract, right? A lot of stuff going on in here. But for me, I'm, I'm all the time like looking for like contrast and opinions. What are the different viewpoints? Because those are the things that the author really tends to care about or the, the AAMC more accurately. And so they, they're talking about these three phases that are distinctive, these three approaches for dealing with language. And then later on came linguistics proper. So in my mind, there's like four things kind of going on. So the first of these phases is that of grammar. Invented by the Greeks and carried on unchanged by the French and never had any philosophical view of a language as such, that's more the concern of logic. All traditional grammar is normative grammar, that is, dominated by a preoccupation with laying down rules and distinguishing between certain allegedly correct language and other allegedly incorrect, which straightaway precludes any broader view of the language phenomena as a whole. So looking at this, there's a couple of things that are, you know, kind of make the hair stand up on the back of my neck, a couple like the, the bells ringing in my ear. So we have this allegedly correct and allegedly incorrect. And so the fact that they said allegedly, in my mind, means the author isn't necessarily on board with this, right? So if something's alleged, despite how we might use that in, in normal everyday language, that means the author isn't necessarily on board. And the last part of that you know, which straightaway precludes any broader view of the language phenomena as a whole, as telling us that the author's not real, it doesn't really like this that much, that we would rather have, a, you know, this broader, more complete view. Um, but this is the first, this is the first of this, you know, talking about this grammar, it's all about like, what's the right word, what's the wrong word, the author thinks is, you know, there's some stuff allegedly going on here, but it stops you from looking bigger picture. So later, and only at the beginning of the 19th century, if we are talking of major events and leaving out the precursors, the philological school of Alexandria came the great philological movement of classic philology <laughs> carrying on down to our day. That's a lot of philologicals going on there. That's almost certainly a term that you are unfamiliar with. But as I come with this, you know, the first part was grammar. I'm guessing the second part is this philology, whatever that is. It's the study of you. So. Yeah, yeah, it's the the study of Phil. Um, I always call my friends philophiles because hopefully they like me, and so maybe the study of me would be philology. So, 
philology introduced a new principle, the method of critical examination of texts. The language was just one of the many objects coming within the sphere of philology and consequently subjected to this criticism. Henceforth, language studies were no longer directed merely towards correcting grammar. The critical principle demanded an examination, for instance, on the contribution of different periods, thus to some extent embarking on historical linguistic. Ritchell's revision of the text of Plautus may be considered the work of a linguist. In general, the philological movement opened up countless sources relevant to linguistic issues, treating them in quite a different spirit from traditional grammar, for instance, the study of inscriptions in their language, but not yet in the spirit of linguistics. So once again, the author is trying to separate. These are like, this is the second of the three ideas. It's not quite the study of linguistics, but there is some study about language. And they we have this, this new principle that was in this, it's like the third or fourth sentence here about how the philology is a method of critical examination of text. So we're looking at this and we're looking at the texts themselves and not just trying to decide, is this the correct word or not? Um, but we're being critical on the texts themselves. Is that something so, you would highlight as you were going through? Yeah. The philology introduced a new principle. That's something that happens really frequently where the AAMC will bring up a new term and they know you're not super familiar with it, or even sometimes you are. But if they redefine a term, that's worth noting because we talked about how important it is to leave your outside info um, and don't bring that in with you. The MCAT will very often do something like, for example, they'll say in the passage that love is a type of pickle. And then later <laughs> on, they'll be like, what is love? And then one of the answers will be, you know, a positive feeling of emotion and affection. And then there's also another answer that says a pickle. And everyone wants to pick the one that's like a feeling of affection, right? Because that's what love is, but that's not how the passage defined it. Yeah. So if you ever have the passage defining a term, you want to kind of pay particular attention to that, especially if that maybe doesn't mesh with your definitions or if it's a completely new term. Um, and so this philology thing, I'm probably going to pay a little bit more attention to. Okay. But the author is still telling us this isn't quite the study of linguistics itself. So going on, we have the third phase in which this spirit of linguistics is still not evident. This is the sensational phase of discovering that languages could be compared with one another, that a bond or relationship existed between languages often separated geographically by great distances, that as well as languages, there were also great language families, in particular, the one which came to be called the Indo-European family. Um, I just realized that's one sentence. That whole paragraph is just like a series of <laughs> semicolons and Grammarly Always. would not like that. No, no, we would not get a good grade on that one. <laughs> but if you look at this, um, so what is this third phase, um, separating it from maybe the first two? Sensational so phase. I'm thinking it's probably, yeah, this like sensational. It's really just about like looking at how these languages fit together. It's almost evolution, like the evolution of mm -hmm. language and how these are related. And so these, they even go into this like Indo-European family stuff. And so this is the third phase, which still is not linguistics, according to the author. So we have the grammar, we have the philology, and then now we have this, this study of like how languages can be compared and related to each other. So surprisingly, there was never a more flawed or absurd idea. Immediately, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up because the author has some very strong opinions here, right? It's flawed and absurd. Whatever this is, I care a lot about, you know, this viewpoint here. So 
there was never a more flawed or absurd idea of what a language is than during the 30 years that followed this discovery by BOP. In fact, from then on, scholars engaged in a kind of game of comparing different Indo-European languages with one another, and eventually they could not fail to wonder what exactly these connections showed and how they should be interpreted in concrete terms. Until nearly 1870, they played this game without any concern for the conditions affecting the life of a language. So the author doesn't have a very like pleasing view of BOP um, <laughs> and this this game. It's also a fun name. Um, but I wonder if his I first name like, was the yeah, mm, yeah, exactly. You're Betty, Betty Bop. <laughs> that was that was his mom. Um, so looking at this, we have the off the idea that the author isn't really a fan of this, and that's way more important than understanding what exactly is going on here, because um, it's the, those opinions, the author's viewpoint, that we really care about. Yep. So continuing on, this very prolific phase, which produced many publications, differs from its predecessors by focusing attention on a greater on a great number of languages and the relations between them. But just like its predecessors, has no linguistic perspective, or at least none which is correct, acceptable, and reasonable. And once again, we're getting some author's viewpoint here that there's no linguistic perspective. None of it is like correct or reasonable or things like that. So it's purely comparative. You cannot altogether condemn the more or less hostile attitude of the philological tradition towards the comparativists, because the latter did not in fact bring any renewal bearing on the principles themselves, none which in practice immediately opened up in any new horizons and with which they can clearly be credited. When was it recognized that comparison is in short, only a method to employ when we have no more direct way of ascertaining the facts? And when did comparative grammar give way to a linguistics which included comparative grammar and gave it a new direction? So, wow. there's the passage. There's a lot of stuff going on here. So, just taking, kind of taking a step back, the things that I really care about, right? So, this, this like looking at linguistics, there were kind of like three phases beforehand, the grammar, the philology, and then looking at how these languages were related to each other. That led to something the author is not a fan of this like comparativist stuff and the author doesn't seem like a lot of good came from it um but those are the three phases that kind of led up to the study of linguistics itself so there we go that's our passage mm -hmm. um moving on here we're gonna take a look at some questions and see how well we can answer these um by utilizing the passage yeah okay so question one just kind of starting on this. Based on the passage, critical examination of texts are the province of? Um, so philology, right? I, I highlighted that earlier. That's the one I asked you. I'm like, should we highlight that? So philology, it gave us the definition, the method of critical examination of texts. So that's a pretty straightforward pull, right. pull it right from the text. Yeah, exactly. And so we have that going there. Note that the other answer choices, the comparativist, that was the later stuff, the logic, the grammar. Um, they kind of mentioned some of these things throughout the passage, but they defined philology as the method of critical examination of text. So that yep. should be a quick, easy answer, provided you were paying attention to that. <laughs> Which is always the first step. Pay attention. Yeah. Super easy to kind of glaze over a little bit. Yeah. So you got to make sure that you're, you're staying focused. Yep. All right, so question two, it can be inferred from the passage that the Indo-European language family is defined by, and so this is one of those, right, the inferred from the passage means it's not going to be in the passage directly, right? And we have to kind of use some 
Yeah. Some other things. It's thinking. a reasoning beyond the text question. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So it's not going to be verbatim in the passage, yep. but using what's in the passage, it's still going to have to be true. Correct. All right. So A, links between a number of languages based on factors other than location. Uh, and so again, we're trying to define the Indo-European language family. B, connections based on historical conditions such as war and migration. C, a traditional and normative grammar that lays down the rules to as to acceptable language use. And D, a flawed belief that it is possible to compare and connect distinct languages for any purpose. So that's interesting. That flawed belief, I'm like, oh, he talked about something being flawed. Let me go back. So uh, the going back to the text, it said there was never a more flawed or absurdity of what a language is than during the 30 years that followed this discovery by Bob. And so this discovery is the whole Indo-European, I think, if I was reading kind of the that process, maybe. Hold on. Let's see. Um, oh, yeah. It's a, little, it's a little frustrating. They bring that up in that one paragraph yep. that is one sentence. Yeah. And so, yeah. It's a super sentence paragraph. The super sentence. And so, the part of me... Um, Part of me wants to go, oh, it must be that flood belief one because that's directly from the passage. But part of me goes, it's a trap. <laughs> it's that, that Star Wars meme. It's a trap. What's the general? Yeah, exactly. Uh, whatever that guy's name is. Um, yeah, I wish I knew. <sighs> links between a number of languages based on factors other than location. So that seems like that is what the definition is. Um, connections based on historical conditions, no. A traditional and normative grammar that lays down, no. And that flawed belief one, I think it's just a trap. So I'm going to go with A, the links between a number of languages based on factors other than location. Yeah, very good. If, if like Going back where they talked about this, they said there's a bond that exists between the, the languages often separated geographically by great distances, um, as well as languages, blah, 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 in particular, the Indo-European thing. So yeah, that, that makes sense. They're linked in some way other than location itself. I love that you looked at D and you're like, that's tempting, but it's a trap, right? That's, that's what I call like a faulty use of detail answer. It's it's one of those things that the moment you read it, it scratches this itch in the back of your brain where you're like, I just read that, right? <laughs> like I, that's, that's definitely a thing, right? It's all the right words, right? That flawed belief kind of like scratches that itch. And so you get kind of excited and kind of want to go towards it, but it doesn't really answer the question because yeah. the question is asking like, what is the definition of the Indo-European language? Yeah. It's, if they ask like, how does the author feel about, you know, the circumstances that led to that, then it's like this flawed belief. Absolutely. But that's not really the definition of it. Yep. Um, so you got to make sure you're answering the question itself. And I really recommend always going back to the passage. I mean, you have the passage in front of you. The Indo-European family is mentioned in the like second and third to last paragraphs. Just go back and grab those sentences real quick and yep. make sure to find the actual definition. All right. I didn't fall for so it. Looking at, yeah. Yeah. So looking at question three. We have the author assumes which of the following about obtaining a broad view of language. So the more that scholars compare languages to each other, the further the study of linguistics develops. Um, B, normative grammar are only interested in figuring out and enforcing certain rules and their enactment. 
C, focusing on rules and what is and isn't proper prevents a holistic understanding of how language works. And D, Ritchell's revision of the text of Plautus is a prime example of the best technique for procuring this view. So I always go back to this question, what is the question asking me? So the, uh, it's asking me, what does the author say is the, uh, what does the author say about obtaining a broad view of language? Uh, I love that you do that. That's something a lot of students, they just immediately dive into the answers and they get kind of sucked in. I think it's really important just kind of take a step back and, Yep. Translate the question and make sure you understand what it what they're actually asking for. Yep. Obtaining a broad view of languages. The more the scholars compare languages to each other, the further the study of linguistics develops, which I think they talked about that. Uh, normative grammars are only interested in... That doesn't sound like a broad view of language. Uh, focusing on rules and what is or isn't proper prevents a holistic understanding of how language works. So this is interesting. This seems to go back to that absurdity, flawed and absurdity of what a language is. Um, and he talked about... The author talked about fail to wonder what exactly these connections show and how they should be interpreted in concrete terms. They played this game without any concern for the conditions affecting the life of the language. So that's interesting. C sounds very interesting. Ritual's revision of Plautus, that's just too crazy. I'm going to go with C because it seems like it's focusing in on that, that one paragraph. Right. So note that they also, they're asking like what helps you get a broad view. Mm -hmm. They actually like use that term in the second paragraph where they talked about this grammar, which is looking at the allegedly correct and incorrect, which straight away precludes a broader view of language. And so, I mean, they're saying that if you're looking at what's correct and what's incorrect, that stops you from getting a broad view of language. And so that, that absolutely matches C. This, like focusing on the rules of what is and isn't proper, prevents a holistic understanding. And so C is the correct answer. Um, note that once again, they're kind of like zooming in on that that bit there where the author has an opinion, right? This allegedly correct, which precludes this view. And so that's why we care a lot about the author's tone and how the author feels about things. All right. So question four. Based on the passage, studies of language prior to the late 19th century were flawed due to the fact that they, A, replaced an earlier philo philosophical view of language with a comparativist one, B, did not include comparative grammar as a means of determining correctness, C, focused heavily on comparison rather than developing principles, or D, reflected the understanding that languages could be compared to each other. So again, what is the question asking? It's saying that the studies of language were flawed before the 19th century. Why? Um, D automatically sounds wrong because, right, we learned a lot more about the study of languages when we compared them to each other. So it wouldn't be flawed because we compared them to each other. So I'm going to throw D out right away. Um, so hopefully that increases my chances. A, replaced an earlier philosophical view of language with a comparativist one. 
B did not include comparative grammar as a means of determining correctness. C focused heavily on comparison rather than developing principles. Oh, man. So again, C sounds wrong because again, it's focused on this comparison, I'm assuming, between languages. And that whole Indo-European comparison didn't come along until later. So C sounds wrong too. Um, Did not include comparative grammar as a means of determining correctness. So B sounds more right because that's basically, right? It's it's basically saying, hey, this whole Indo-European, we can compare languages, that's going to help us understand language and before the 19th century they didn't include that so obviously that's going to make the studies flawed so i'm gonna go with b for some reason that sounds right yeah so it's actually c for this one oh. um so we know that the author doesn't like if we go back to the like comparative grammar or the not the uh but if you go back to the grammar stuff Right. The author didn't love the like strict grammar stuff, you know, that stops you from getting those broad views. And so the author's problem with this viewpoint is not just that, you know, they didn't include grammar because Mm -hmm. the author also doesn't think we should focus like purely on grammar itself as well. And so the, the, the problem here is just it's too much comparison as you go to those like later paragraphs, those last two paragraphs, um, we have this like, um, surprisingly, there was never a more flawed or absurd idea than during these 30 years. We in, uh, engaged in this kind of comparing stuff. And eventually, we could not fail but wonder what exactly these connections showed and how they should be interpreted. And so we're, everyone's just trying to connect stuff and not really developing principles, especially if you look at the last paragraph, mm. where it's like it's purely comparative. You cannot altogether condemn the more or less hostile attitude of the logical towards the comparativist because the latter, the comparativist, did not in fact bring any renewal bearing on the principles themselves, none which in practice immediately opened up new horizons, which they could clearly be credited. And so they weren't kind of doing anything along those lines. So question number five, in a latter part or later part of the essay, the author defines what he sees as linguistics proper. Based on the passage, which of these is most likely the definition of linguistics in the text? So, A, linguistics will constantly have to deal with the written language and will often have to rely on the insights of philology in order to make its bearing among these written texts. B, linguistics is marked by an attachment to the letter of the, to the written language so that the written and the spoken are conflated. Linguistics recognizes laws operating universally in language and in a strictly rational manner, separating general phenomena from those restricted to one branch of language languages or another or d linguistics functions by picking out whatever is most general an operation of generalization presupposes that which that we have already investigated the object under scrutiny in such a way as to be able to pronounce upon what its general features are so this question is i think one of the hardest kinds of questions (laughs) because they're asking you for stuff that is not in the passage they're asking you to take what's in the passage and try to apply it to some new outside the information stuff. I call this like an application sort of question where you're applying the passage to some new info because A, B, C, and D, none of those are in the passage. Yeah. And so you can't just go find it, but you have to try to make, figure out which one of these we actually care about. Oh man. 
Linguistics will constantly have to deal with the written language and will often and will often have to rely on the insights of philosophy, philology, uh, in order to take its bearings among the written texts. So it's interesting, unless I completely blanked out, I don't remember where it talks a lot about written texts. So, yeah, I don't know. Linguistics is marked by a, quote, attachment to the letter, to the written language. So that, quote, the written and the spoken are conflated. Linguistics recognizes laws operating universally in language and in a strictly rational manner, separating general phenomena from those restricted to one branch of language or another. Oh, man, that's interesting. Linguistics functions by picking out whatever is most general. The operation of generalization presupposes that we have already in investigated the object under scrutiny in such a way as to be able to pronounce upon what its general features are. So I like C or D here. Um, I'm going to go with C. There's something about D that it's like a little bit too specific to like how we define things and not necessarily linguistics. I'm going to go with C. Right. Especially that, like, in D, picking out whatever is most general. I, I mean, I don't know where that comes from. There's not really anything in the passage about that. Yeah. Um, given C, we have this, like, recognize the laws that operate universally in language. And some of you guys might be like, well, th that's not really in the passage either. But if we look at the author's tone and the way the author feels, right, the author's kind of annoyed by the grammar thing, mm -hmm. like, what's right and what's wrong. We talk about the philology, then we talk about the comparativist, and then the author's, like, really annoyed about all this comparison um, and, like, looking at the differences between these languages. So it makes sense that he's going to be, a, or he or she is going to be a fan of understanding like what stuff is similar between these because he's got a problem with comparing them yeah and so he just feels right like looking at what stuff is universal in language in this rational manner separating the general from stuff that's restricted to certain branches um but yeah absolutely all right not too bad what did i get four out of five yeah i got still got one more question now oh man that's a big yeah. passage <laughs> all right it is uh, question six, based on the passage, all of the following were objections philologists had to comparativists accept. A, the lack of focus on principles that allowed new understandings of language. B, the focus on comparison as an end, as an end in and of itself. C, the belief that comparison is the primary method of obtaining information. Or D, the inclusion of comparative grammar in the study of language. So objections philologists had to comparativists. And so again, just the philology definition, the method of critical examination of texts. Um, so this is an accept one, so don't fall for that trap. Uh, the lack of focus on principles that allowed new understandings of language. I think that was a, an objection that we saw. B, the focus on comparison as an end in and as an end in and of itself. That's hard to say. Um, it is. <laughs> uh, okay. Hmm. Potentially B, C, the belief that comparison is the primary method of obtaining information. And D, 
the inclusion of comparative grammar in the study of language. <sighs> so B and C are very, very similar, right? The focus on, on comparison yeah. as an end in and of itself, the belief that comparison is the primary method. So did they talk about comparison being the primary method? Oh, man. So I'm going to go with B because C seems potentially right. So the belief that comparison is the primary method, right? Comparatives are going to have that thought. They're like, if that's the, their whole name is comparison. Um, right. But do they believe that comparison is the only thing? Probably not. They just think it's the primary method. So B seems like a good accept one. Yeah. So it's actually neither of them. Oh, man. Yeah. And so like, it, it's helpful to kind of like take a step back and like think about the passage. Okay. We have the three, we have like the grammar, we have the philologist, and we have the comparativists. And so what's a complaint that the philologist didn't have against the comparativists was, you know, stuff with grammar, right? Because those are the grammar people. There's the grammar people, the philologist, and then the, the comparativist. And so the answer is D, the inclusion of comparative grammar. That's not not something that the comparativists, they're not going to be focused on the grammar because grammar mm. is that third group besides the philologist and the comparativists. Um, but yeah, I like also that you looked at and said like B and C are very like similar yeah. <laughs> between them. Um, that's a good thing to note. If you see two answers that are like very similar, uh, you, you want to be probably really can't careful. be right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause if one of them's right, then the other one kind of can't be. Yeah. Um, yeah, so probably going to go with D on that one. Um, definitely a difficult passage. That sort of like scattered detail where three of the things are true and one of them isn't. I feel like that's a lot harder of a question than if they just ask you which of these is true. Yeah. Because if they ask you which of these is true, you can just go find it. But here they're saying three of them is true and one of them isn't. So you can't go find the thing that's not in the passage. Yeah. Right. That's not a... Th- like you can't do that. So that means you have to go back and like find the three things that are there. And that's really time consuming. So it's one of the most time consuming, difficult questions that exists. Question six is. All right. So there you have it. Another MCAT podcast in the books. I hope this was helpful for you. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you really learned something. Don't forget to let your friends know about this free MCAT prep for them. Send them to mcatpodcast.com. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on the MCAT podcast. This is MedEd Media.